welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. Next on calls from the clubhouse are Carrick Jackson and Juan Clark. Carrick is going into his third season as the head baseball coach at Southern University. He's also the committee chair for the ABCA Diversity Committee. Coach Jackson has been involved with every level of college and pro baseball. On the pro side, he worked for the Boris Corporation as an agent and was an amateur scout with the Washington Nationals. Prior to coaching the Jaguars, Coach Jackson spent five seasons at Mizzou and has also had stops at Nichols State, Fairfield University, Emporia State, and Coffeyville College. Juan Clark is the Director of Exhibits and Branding for the ABCA. He's been with our organization for 19 years. He was in the original office in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, and played college football at Central Michigan. We're at a pivotal time in America. Carrick, Juan, and I cover the topic of diversity in and out of baseball, and this episode has tips for actionable solutions to race relations in and out of sports. Let's welcome Carrick and Juan to the podcast. Here with Carrick Jackson, head coach at Southern U and ABCA chair for the diversity committee and also Juan Clark, uh, ABCA director of exhibits and branding in 19 years with the ABCA. So thank you both for, for jumping on with me. Appreciate you having me on. Juan and I talked about this uh, before uh, you got on with us, Carrick, and I want to I want to start right into it. Um, just from a, a white person's perspective, as you're having conversations, black or African American or more minority or nothing, you know, when you're described with descriptions. So, so for me, I, I, I think um, being a baby of the '70s. Um, and, and being raised by my grandparents, um, it was, it was black. Like it was, it was, and again, not that I was caught up in the movements at that age. I'm, I'm an infant at that time, but, um, it was just, just always known as black. And I understand where people talk about African-American or people of color or, or those types of things. But, um, I, I think I use all the terms. Uh, but but I'm quick to say black folks, black people, I'm black, those types of things. So uh, just from a white pers- person's perspective, as we're having a conversation and we're conversing with from description standpoint, I mean, what what's comfortable for you in, in that conversation? Does it matter? It, it, it to me, it doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, don't call me the wrong thing. Then we got a problem, <laughs> but but but. Any of those terms that 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 uh, that people choose to use, um, I, I think for me they're they're interchangeable. Juan, is that and, the same thing for you? I couldn't I agree more. I mean, um, yeah. I'm same child of the '70s, so it was always black growing up. It changed to African American at some point, and I'll answer to both. So, and I have a 17 year old and a 14 year old, and with everything that's going on um, with the protests. And everything. I'm trying to have conversations with them, and I want to make sure that I'm I'm educating them as well. And so it comes not just from the coaching side for me, but it, from a parenting standpoint, where you're trying to help your kids navigate uh, what what is right and and wrong too as well. And you know we're, we all have kids, so I think we're all in similar situations with trying to educate people on that. And you know, Carrick, as a as a young coach. 
you know, you've navigated to a head coaching position through the, the college baseball landscape. And did you have any mentors uh, that helped you through the process or were you by yourself? No, I, I did. I, I don't think any of us can go through this thing without having some mentors. Uh, you know, I guess you go back and start as early as in being in high school. And my, one of my high school coaches, Tom Dix, um, who was an assistant coach uh, for us for a brief time and then took over as a head coach. Um, and then uh, Coach Anderson, um, Coach Reese, um, you know, Coach Anderson at, at, our, or at, um, at Nebraska and Coach Reese um, when I was at Bethune-Cookman. Um, Actually, the only black coaches that I had was I played uh, two summers with the Matthew Dickey's Boys Club um, and Coach Ford and and uh, oh, shoot, his name is escaping me. But uh, those are the two black coaches that I had um, that uh, throughout my coaching career uh, from a baseball perspective, and and they also gave me a really good perspective on. Um, on how things should be. Uh, so, yeah. And then once you get past that and start moving up, Dave Bingham um, was, was, you know, once I kind of started going into that college deal, like he's that, I think he's that one guy that gave me that, that foundation of accountability and responsibility and discipline. And um, nobody really cares about any of the reasons why you can't get something done, just get it done. Um, I, I learned a lot of that from him. Were there any turning points in your career with your career path? I, I look at mine, there were like three crossroads where maybe I need to get out because I can't afford it anymore. Did you have any turning points in your career? You know, I, I'd probably say um, not necessarily. Uh, if if there was any, it was probably when I was at uh, Nickel State um, and I was there from 2005 to 2007. Uh, my grandmother was ill at the time and she was in St. Louis and I was kind of trying trying to travel back and forth between Thibodeau and and St. Louis, which is not an easy uh, not an easy move uh, when it when it comes to that. So um, I moved back and that's how I ended up getting into the scouting deal was because I moved back to St. Louis job opportunities um, of, from a coaching standpoint weren't necessarily plentiful in the area. I had to stay in the Midwest. Um, I'd always had scouts reaching out to me, asking me, you know, Hey man, you need to come on this side. Uh, and so then when I kind of put that word out that I, I was ready to get on the scouting side of things, but I had to stay in the Midwest. Um, so that was kind of that, that, that moment. Um, I guess maybe the other was, uh, being at university of Missouri. Um, we're there from 2010 to 2015. Um, we had two young boys at the time, uh, and my wife comes to me and she's like, I can't do this. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's tough, uh, with it, as you guys know, being a recruiting coordinator, as much as I was gone. Um, and so we needed to make a change. She had an opportunity with her company. Uh, so I stepped away from the game at that point, uh, was a stay at home dad, um, which, uh, I didn't mind doing that. Uh, but then we put our boys into school and then once we put them into school full time, I, I just, I was like, Hey, like, I'm not cut from this cloth to just sit at home and do home projects all day. Um, so that's when I got with Boris Corp, um, because those guys approached me. Um, I was coaching, uh, out of the tournament of stars and they knew I was leaving Missouri cause it had kind of been out there and been public. And, um, so they approached me at tournament of stars and say, Hey, listen, whenever you're ready, uh, we have a job for you. Uh, no rush. We understand the family obligation and what you're doing. So you come to us and let us know when you're ready and we want you on board. And so that led me to that, that position and that opportunity. Um, so I would, I would say 
not necessarily crossroads, but now being able to look back at those experiences and those opportunities, um, it, it put me in a very unique situation and allowing me to touch all aspects of this game. Um, so providing me with that knowledge base uh, to be able to do some positive things. You know, what have been kind of your biggest hurdles? I mean, you were at Mizzou, um, you know, and you're a good example. Like a lot of your family situation dictates, um, you know, what you can and cannot do from a, a coaching from your path perspective, because you are, if you're single, way different than if you have a family. You know, what are some of the other hurdles? You know, I, I think when you look at it, um, the family deal wasn't as big of a thing because I didn't get married till I was 37. Right. Um, right, wrong or indifferent. Um, I knew what I wanted to do professionally um, and I didn't ever want to have to make a decision for somebody else. Um, so I, I knew what my career path was. Um, many times my family uh, and friends gave me trouble uh, about, you know, what I was doing and how I was doing it. And, you know, I, I, we have, as you guys know, you have players. Hey, I want to coach. No, you don't. Um, because, you know, I, I remind them, hey, listen, I didn't make more than $10,000 a year for the first time. So I was 30 years old. Um, and so, but for me, that was okay. I'd never asked anybody for anything. I never asked my parents for help. Making $5,000 living in the dorms at Coffeyville Community College with a meal plan was perfect for me. I, I had no issues with it. I was, I grew up broke. So being broke wasn't something new to me. Um, and every time I got just a little bit more um, as people that have been broke, you understand that I'm going to stay in this lane just because I'm making this much. I'm not, my lane's not going to increase. I'm going to stay in the same lane. Um, so I think that allowed me to, to go uh, and do some different things. Um, I think when you look at, when you talk about hurdles, um, I think for me, I established a, a, a work ethic. Um, I established a level of professionalism um, that allowed me to get different opportunities where there's some things that I wasn't considered for possibly. Uh, but I never, I never, I, I tell people this job that I have right now, this is the first job I ever applied for. So I, I was always in a position where I was someplace and somebody said, Hey, we have a need. And based on the need that we have, I'm going to be able to pay you X, Y, Z. And so, okay, well now I got a chance to do the same thing, but make a little bit more money specifically with the money that I was making. Now you're going from $5,000 to $10,000 and $10,000 to $30,000. Those people look at it and say, well, you made some lateral moves. No, they weren't lateral. Um, they, you know, they were at 30 years old. You, you need to start making more money. Um, and so it probably wasn't until last summer um, that I believe that I, I crossed uh, and came up with a, with an actual racial, in my opinion, infused hurdle that it made me scratch my head. How do we educate young coaches with that? We all went through it. I'm in the same boat. I think 28 was the first time I was making any sort of significant amount of money in coaching. How do we educate young coaches that are getting into it? Like this is, sorry, this is the way it is right now. Hopefully it gets better here down the road, but right now this is it because we do lose some coaches because of that. How do we educate them on that part of it? You know, I think I think the part of it that's tough now is kids today want instant gratification. They want it right now. There is no idea of me waiting and putting in the time and putting the work in and establishing a resume and experience. That doesn't exist for them. Um, and part of that is because everything is instant, right? Like it's Instagram, Twitter, it, it's all right there. So they grow up in this this society of 
it happens right now. Um, and so I have young assistants and, and I talk to them all the time. And the, the one thing I tell them is be where your feet are at. Like I knew what my goals were as a coach and what I wanted to get accomplished, but I was never looking to that next spot. I was going to make that spot what I wanted it to be the best that it could possibly be. And as a result of that, if something manifested from that, then great. If it didn't, then this was going to be the best program in the country at that time because of the time and effort that I was putting into it. Uh, but right now it's, I got to be a volunteer and I got to get to the power five. I got to get to the sec. I got to, and, and I, I tell them, you know, one, be careful what you wish for. Yes. Uh, you know, we, we all have been in those situations. And, and I remember uh, one of my good friends um, is Chad Kaye and, and he was at Southeastern and I was at Nichols uh, and, and he and I are kind of cut off out of the same cloth. And we constantly would hear people talk about, you know, when I get to the SEC, I'll be able to do this. It's like, ah, you're not going to be in the SEC recruiting against the nickel states and the southeasterns of the world. So don't think that just because you get there that now all of a sudden things get that much easier. So basically it's, it's trying to get them to understand patience and trying to get them to understand that um, you got to put your time in. Uh, and, and if you put your time in, you'll be in a good situation. And let's get into to kind of the racial side of things. Now, as a head coach, do you have ethnic sensitivity training for, for your squads, maybe more than what you did as an assistant coach? Because I know when I was at Western with the Colin Kaepernick stuff going on, you know, I had five minorities on my team at the time. So with our classroom sessions, we would bring people in to talk to our team about what was going on, but also the differences that it was a, a police brutality issue. It wasn't a military issue. So we brought that up. Are, what are you doing with your, your squad right now? Are you doing anything at all with them? So, so we've had some conversations, but um, for me, um, you know, this is the first opportunity that I've had to coach at a predominantly black institution. Every place else I've been has been a predominantly white institution. Uh, I am somebody that, that I consider myself to be very, very real. Um, so I believe I'm qualified to provide you know, racial sensitivity conversations. Right. And, and but I'm going I'm going to be real with you about it. And so take, for example, um, being here, we have seven white kids on our team here um, in going through the process with some of them. You get the question, uh, you know, how's my son going to fit in uh, on a predominantly black campus? And I said, well, there's I said, that's a multifaceted question. But I said, first of all, what I will tell you is this will be an opportunity for your son to have a different perspective on life, first and foremost. Second, I tell them that you have to understand that as black folks, we've always been in the minority and we've always been in the minority, not by choice. That's what we were born into. That's how it is. When we go places, it, it, it's just that way. So because we've always been in the minority, we know what it feels like to be ostracized. We know what it feels like to be in the minority. So then when you take this type of environment in HBCU and you have someone who's not black that chooses to be here, there's an instant level of acceptance because they're making the choice to be the minority. They're not forced into this decision. So the fact that they're choosing to come here, that in itself makes people say, okay, well, that person chose to be here. So then they must be good with the situation the way that it is. Now, are you going to have outliers? You're going to have outliers in every situation. Are you going to have some black kids that are going to be on campus that are going to look at somebody and say, What's that white boy doing here? That's just, it's going to happen. But those are few and far between, and none of our kids have ever come back to me and told me that they've had those experiences. 
we had one kid on our team who was from Florida um, and he was as lily white as lily white could be. And he was excited about the opportunity, got here first week of school. And I found this out for some of our players. He's walked across campus and some, some girl that he had seen a couple days, she all of a sudden gives him a nickname salt. Well, now I see him walking across campus. Now he's got a little swag. Of, whoa, whoa, where, like, where did that come from? Like, but he started to feel comfortable in the environment. Uh, and so, so when we talk to kids, uh, we do talk about those things. And then I, I'm constantly reminding our white kids, make sure that you understand when we go eat someplace, when we show up to a field, they don't pick you out. You are now lumped into the hole. So they're looking at you the same way they're looking at me, the way that they're looking at your teammates. So I need you to be aware of how you're being viewed and then take that back and process that into how maybe you've said or done some things. And I think that resonates with some of those guys. With the current state of things with the police force, how much, how many conversations are you having with your guys as far as how to act off campus and then on campus? Are you having to have any talks with them? So we don't have a lot of conversations because I believe that that's one of those conversations. Um, and again, I, I preface this by saying I was raised by my grandparents, right? And my grandparents were very black and white. There was no gray area. Right was right. Wrong was wrong. If you did something wrong, there was consequences. If you did something right, you, that's what you're supposed to do. There always wasn't going to be a reward. So for me, I really only need to tell you that one time. And after I tell you that one time of how you should act in those types of situations, and then I give you the examples of if you don't necessarily act in the other situation, the, the right way in these situations, let me give you this list of names of what could be the result. Yeah. If that doesn't sink in for you, nothing's going to sink in. But again, I think with our, with our black players that we have, you got some of them that are going to want to be militant and those types of things. And we're quick to remind them, Hey, listen, you can be as militant as you want to, but you're seeing now what the results can be. And there is no consequence on the other side. Exactly. So make sure you're making smart decisions when it comes to that. When was your first experience with it, with racism? I mean, how early was it for you? So um, it was my junior year in high school. Um, we're coming home from football practice. Um, my cousin um, and two other guys, so it was four of us in a car. Um, my cousin drove a BMW. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, so... Again, we're getting out of football practice. You're talking about 5, 36 o'clock, which is also rush hour time. Uh, we lived in um, a suburb of St. Louis, a town called Kirkwood. Um, and we're driving home. Um, we make a left turn on uh, from Guy Road to Big Ben. Big Ben is a major thoroughway in, in that area. Um, cop pulls us over, pulls us out of the car, puts us on the curb um, with no explanation. Uh, of of anything, um, searches the car, has us sitting out there in rush hour traffic on the curb with our handcuff, uh, hands behind our back, searches the car, nothing's in the car, puts us back in the car, lets us go. By the time I get home, I'm balling. Um, my, my father was uh, on the city council uh, of Kirkwood. He's like, what happened? I tell him what happened. Obviously, immediately he's irate. Um, calls the police chief that whole deal. Um, and, and it was, it was solely that we didn't, we didn't speed. There was no improper turn signal. His reason was that he said that we changed lanes without signaling after making the turn. And that was, that, that was that first experience of, um, you know, uh, 
wow, that happened just because we were black. Juan, what about you? What about your experience? Oh, yeah, very similar situation, honestly. Um, we were driving. Again, I was driving. Um, just got my license in, in a small little town. Um, so town of Mount Pleasant is about 25, 26,000, maybe even to this day. So, um, you know, just taking a, a turn from one road to the next, uh, got pulled over, uh, brand new, uh, driver nervous as can be. Uh, I unfortunately I hopped out of the car. It's like, okay, uh, uh, you know, what'd I do? And he's like, get back in the car right now. So I get back in the car and I was like, oh crap, I'm in trouble. So um, basically he just, you know, gives me the whole nine. You know, where are you going? You know, that sort of thing. Um, you know, and it's broad daylight, you know, it may have been around 11, 12, uh, uh, maybe 12 noon. So um, just ask where I'm going, you know, um, and my new driver gave him my driver's license. Uh, he knew I was brand new. Um, made me get out, sat on the side of the car a little little while. Um, nothing came up, obviously, because I hadn't had my driver's license for more than two months. Um, get back in the car, and he says, "You know, you know why I stopped you?" I said, "No way. I don't know why I stopped me. I'm brand new. Was I speeding? What did I do?" Um, and it, and it was, he, he thought I had a taillight out. I was like, okay, I'll get it fixed. And he goes, well, just, you know, just pay attention and go on your way. That could have happened to anybody. I, I realized that. But after the fact, it was, it was like, well, wait a minute. That doesn't normally happen. That's not normal for a person to get out of the car. And, um, there was no taillight. Got home, checked it out. There's nothing. I had my sister look at it from both sides. I didn't trust her, made her get in. She pushed on the brake, you know. So there was nothing there. But, you know, I just thought, man, you know, this is not good. But that was just what I had to deal with. So um, my first little encounter, you know, other than the small little encounters, you know, when you're growing up in grade school. But that, that story that Carrick uh, told kind of reminded me of that same one. What about on the college playing side? Juan, you played football and then Carrick with baseball. D did you experience much of it as, as athletes in college? Well, as a football player, you know, um, well, actually, I was. they told me I was too skilled to play baseball. So uh, as a football player, it was really different. Yeah, obviously, there was uh, all sorts of looks whenever you, you get five or six black players and a lot of times they're bigger than you so they're intimidating um you get the looks all the time you get followed all the time so i mean i can name a hundred of them but um it, it was just kind of what you're used to um so nothing really that um ever major happened to me um but other than that you know, just that normal every day, those looks, those, hey, I'm watching you, um, cop pulls up next to you, um, you're driving down the road, you wave, they wave. It, it was almost in a sense that they were more or less saying, okay, stay in line because I'm watching you sort of thing. And those are the things that as a white person, like you, you feel because you you don't have to do that. Like I, you don't have to worry about that. And I think that's the biggest part of this whole issue is 
that as a white person, you don't have to deal with these things. You don't have to deal with the looks. And I think, you know, for me, it's, we need to do a better job of communicating all of this and telling these stories because I don't think people realize it. Like if you haven't had to go through it, like you don't realize it. And so, you know, Carrick, what about you for, for playing it wise? You know, I, I, when I think about it from a playing perspective, um, I don't necessarily know if there was anything blatant, you know, like I said, playing at Bethune Cookman um, and, and going into some different environments, you know, we went into Florida that year and that's, so that's 96, um, which I, I think is the year that they may have gone to the world series. Um, and we, we came within um, an eyelash of, ble- of beating them. Um, I mean, we, we held our own um, that whole time and, you know, when you get into some of those games uh, now, maybe the, the strike zone gets a little bit smaller and, and those types of things. But I don't necessarily remember anything just completely blatant um, because, it, unfortunately, in that in that arena at times, if you will, as an athlete. Sometimes color goes away on the field, right? Like it. It, not all the times, and if, if you have that that racist official, uh, they will flex. But for the most part, in that when you're in that arena, there's times where it goes away, um, and it may be because if it is shown, it will be so obvious that whoever is exhibiting that that, that form of prejudice or racism, it'll be a spotlight put on them. You know, if, if it's in a, in a basketball game and a guy makes a call, if it's football and a guy makes a call, if it's baseball and a guy so i think from that standpoint um you know uh, you could have that now from crowds and you know those type of things different story you know going some places and, and having people make some racial slurs and that type of thing for sure um and and it, it shows again it just shows what uh where people are and, and what they think you know the one, one thing i did with it with our team when we had one of our zoom calls talking about this was make sure you understand that Black folks are still being tolerated and not accepted. And don't confuse the two. Um, And and the reason why I I want them to understand that is because when you talk about tolerance, well, tolerance only goes so far. And then once it's reached its limits, then there's going to be some type of repercussion on the other side of that. Acceptance, there is no limit to acceptance. And, and what we're seeing right now is we're seeing that black folks are still being tolerated, that black folks have not been accepted. Um, and so it's important for, for everybody to understand that and, and, and realize where we are when it comes to that so we can make those changes. Can sports help with that? I mean, look what happened this week with, with Drew Brees. I, I loved what Tony Dungy said, his response to that. You know, I look at guys like Greg Popovich and then Steve Kerr. Those are the guys that I kind of look at from a political standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, that I think have a good pulse of what's going on. But, um, you know, can sports, is this a way to, to help us alleviate some of what's going on? So I would say yes and no, right? Um, and, and so I'll start with the no. The reason why I say the no part of it is because, unfortunately for us as black folks and specifically black males, you're an athlete. You're a musician, so rapper, singer, actor, and, and that's and then and then once you get past these specific areas of quote unquote glorification, well then the next then goes to are you selling drugs? Are you involved in the gang? Right? So those are those five kind of areas where black folks 
again, get some quote unquote notoriety, we don't talk about the Juan Clarks of the world that are doing well and that have been with an organization for 19 years and established and does like, he's not glorified. So he's nobody's saying, Hey, grow up to be like Juan Clark, unfortunately. So, but so that's the no part to the athletic aspect of to sports is because, because our identity then becomes wrapped up into one of those three acceptable areas. If we don't reach those acceptable areas, unfortunately, then the next thing for some people is to go to those negative areas. Um, so if our identity is tied in the sport and you don't meet that, then now, well, what importance do you have? What, what value do you have in some people's minds? Um, on the yes side of it, I would say yes, because when you look at movements and different things in our history, some place, somehow sports has been at the crux of that, be it the Olympics with Jesse Owens, be it, um, you know, when the, the guys, um, when the group in the, what, what Olympics was that one with a, in the sixties uh, with yeah, the glove. Berlin. Yes. Um, it was Berlin. So, yeah. So Berlin, you know, so when you have some of those different things, you, you now you start to look back and see that, sports has been part of some of those types of movements. So then there's the positive side of it. Um, but well, there's going to be more exposure too. That, that's where it can help because they're going to be on ESPN. You know, ESPN is going to interview athletes. Like that's, you talked about acceptance. How, how do we get to acceptance? You know, how, how do we get to that point? For me, it's, I think it's, it's communication. Um, it's education. I think it also has to start with the idea of I'm in my opinion, we all black folks, white folks, whoever people of color, we all have some form of subconscious racism and or prejudice. And so until people can admit that, then th that then we'll always have the problem. Right. And, and then now you only have to go back. So we're we're getting ready to homeschool our boys. Um, part of the deal is obviously with what's going on with COVID. And so that changed some things. Uh, and then the part of the discussion of it uh, with my wife and I has been that um, the idea that from a historical perspective, we now get to talk to our boys and make sure our boys understand black folks didn't start a slave. What age are your boys? Nine and seven. Okay. So, so then now, um, you know, when you talk about how can we get to acceptance? Well, again, start to educate people and, um, and, and for people that aren't of color to be able to first admit, you know what, subconsciously, I may be a racist. I may be prejudiced. I may have said some things that I didn't think were negative or had bad implications to them, but I'm telling you that right now, how do you make sure that I am educated to make sure I don't say or do those things again? Jackson and I watched the 13th. This was about two or three years ago when it came out. A former player of mine recommended it to me. He was like, Coach, have you seen the 13th yet? I'm like, no. Um, and for me, it was eye-opening. But for him, you know, growing up white, like, you don't have to deal with any of that. Like, it was – he was – my son, I've never seen him that frustrated. I'm like, J Jackson, this is an actual thing. Like, this, this is what happens. And, you know, what are some other resources for people that maybe are trying to get educated on some of the systemic – issues out there what are some other resources that people can look into i think just i think history right just just knowing our history and, and going back like you said that that movie 
Um, uh, obviously talks about that, that documentary obviously talks about that and gives some perspective on it. Um, you know, I mean, it's, um, I think understanding how things were, what the history of it is, uh, and, and, you know, again, we can talk about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and, you know, all those, there's, you know, 12, 12 black folks that are in the history books and that's where everybody thinks that it is. Well, there's much more to it. There's a lot more depth to it. Um, but again, because of how our school system is set up, it's set up with here's black history in the course of our history. And then let's move on from that. Well, then, of course, we're going to be in a situation where our mind is then conditioned to that's all that black folks, their con contribution to everything is. And then when you again, when you bringing things full circle and we're talking about, you know, you got your slogans about make America great again. Well, you had the Asians that were brought over as slaves that built the railroads. You had the black folks that were brought over to build the infrastructure. I mean, there's so many more people of color and minorities that contributed to the development of our nation than anyone else. And so the reality of it is, is, is America America without what was done by those people? And most people don't understand or want to believe that that is the case. Well, the Bruce Lee documentary, I just watched Be Water. Um, it talked a lot about that with the Asian bringing him over for the railroads. It, it, it addressed that. And that's what he was trying to fight his entire career was was the racism in Hollywood. I mean, they still have it. It's still in Hollywood. They still they still have white actors play minority roles because they're trying to sell tickets like you you still have it and juan and i talked about this like what are the differences between right now you know society baseball wise than 1968 i mean what are the differences and then what are some of the similarities so uh, i think if you'd asked the question two weeks ago the answer may be a little bit different right like i would have said two weeks ago i would have told you that the biggest differences were back then here was my water fountain. I go drink that. Here's my clubhouse. I go dress in that. If player X didn't appreciate me because I was a black player, they're going to tell me. They're going to use every name. They're going to tell me to get out of here, so on and so forth. Today, it's not acceptable to say those things. But again, that was two weeks ago. Because now it, it under the and, and not to get political, but under the current administration, that veil has been lifted back and say, hey, no, you can say whatever you want to say. You can if you feel a certain way, then by all means, say what you feel, because as the head of the country, I'm going to say what I feel. I'm going to tweet what I want to tweet. I'm going. So now now you're getting the people there saying, oh, OK, I can say that I can do that. And that's starting to come back up. And the problem is, is that because we've gone so long of being accustomed to it, not being politically correct to say and do those things. Now you have people enraged even more because those things are coming out. And, and so and, and I say it all the time and not to be disrespectful to my grandparents or anybody that was in that time. There's part of me that wishes it was still that way. So now I know. Yeah, now it's in your face then. Rather, well, what is he really thinking? Nope. You think I'm this? You tell me I'm that? Cool. Now I know. Stay away from you. Chris Ramirez said that the other day. We were talking on the phone. He's Lenore Ryan. I've known him forever, just like I've known you forever. He goes, why Why are college coaches held to a higher standard than the president of the United States? Like, why is that a thing right now? 
And that's been frustrating for me that, you know, if, if you're going to take that office, there's some responsibilities that come with that. And he's not showing any of it. And again, not to get political, but I'm right there with you. It's frustrating um, just because we should be further along than what we are right now. Um, Juan, you got anything to add with that? I, I will say uh, what I've noticed was social media playing a huge part of this whole role. Um, it definitely gives a, a people who have a platform. Now they have a platform for you know people that shouldn't have a platform. Now they have a platform to say some ridiculous things and they hide behind this computer screen. Um, that to me is just it's just infuriating to me to see that people can um, throughout these unbelievable demands and unbelievable statements and then um, get their buddies to like and re-like and retweet and and um, follow them as well. And then next thing you know, you have an entire group of people and a movement um, that shouldn't be because these people obviously are, you know, clinically unstable, number one. But number two, um, we have the other side of this trying to fight against uh, that nonsense and that hate as well. And they're getting drowned out, you know, basically. So I think social media plays a huge part in it, Um, you know, giving a voice to people that pretty much should not have one. So... That, that to me, yeah, um, is just so apparent nowadays, just um, the amount of social media that just can just um, absolutely just drown out the right things, the righteous things that, that are being said. Carrick, what, what can we do? I mean, everybody's going to be, okay, we had protests and the George Floyd stuff, but it seems like everybody gets hot and bothered for a brief moment and then that's going to be it. And then it's going to go back to the way it was. What are some actionable things that we can do to help sustain some of the momentum we have going on right now? Again, I I really think it comes down to communication and education. Um, I I just think that, you know, I've obviously uh, guys uh, that, that are in this business with me that are, that are white coaches have called and, and ask me, Hey, you know, what, what do I say? Um, you know, we have three black kids on our team, this, that, and the other. Um, ironically, um, I think the, the coaches that don't have any black kids on their team, they're the ones that really need to be having the conversations, um, with their team. Um, but, but I think that, uh, again, I think the admittance of, of being able to say, Hey, you know what, I may, I don't think that I'm a racist. I don't think that I've done anything prejudiced, but I need to come to you now as a black player on my team and say, I may have done or said something that I wasn't aware of. And I'm admitting that to you now. So that's the first thing Two, I'm giving you permission to hold me accountable. If those things take place that you have to be able to come to me and say, Hey coach, you said some wild shit. So I need you to, Oh man, I didn't even realize. Okay. And, and then, and then now, you know, um, and as I told, you know, I was talking with somebody else and, and I told him, I said, as, as coaches um, and specifically baseball coaches, we always tell our players, you need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Well, we can't be, we can't be in a situation where, like I said, the, the irony uh, and the hypocrisy of that is we can't tell our players 
you need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And then as coaches, we're like, ah, that's an uncomfortable situation. I don't want to have that. Whoa, well, we can't ask them to do something that we're not willing to do. So I think, again, more from for, for the majority of white coaches that are out there, they need to understand you need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. You need to open yourself up and admit where your place may be in this. And you don't, you may have said or done something. And now let's make sure we get that fixed and let's have these conversations again with your teams and with your black players that are there. Um, or if you don't have any black players on the team, really, really having that because if you don't have any black players on your team, they're, I'd be willing to go and put everything on it that the players that don't have minority kids on their team are not having those conversations. Exactly. So then how do you know what the tent of your clubhouse is? How do you know what those guys are saying when you're on the road, when Southern university, a predominantly black team steps into the field at university X, which is an all white team. How do you know that your kids aren't going back and saying, a bunch of calling a bunch of N words and this, that, and the other. And, and when they're on the field and saying those things, because since you don't have any black kids, well, that's not an issue for us. We don't have any black kids. So we don't have to worry about it. That's where the problem is more than anything else. And I like that. Just add on that. I think um, coaches who don't have, I think you said it perfectly, uh, but I think, you know, coaches that don't have the, um, um, the black players, the minority players, whatever, you know, Puerto Rican players on their team, um, they need to have that conversation um, nearly day one, day two. If it's not day two, it's day three. That conversation needs to be, you know, gotten out there in the open. This is what we stand for. I know every coach has, you know, his, you know, top 10 things that he wants to um, uh, implement during the season, but Definitely, he should say, this is what we stand for. This is what um, we're all about. This is what we're not going to stand for. Maybe um, should be, you know, if, if this is what we stand for is one, maybe one A is this is what we're not going to stand for. And it, race has to be a part of that. Um, just so players know where you're coming from. E- even if those players are racist, they won't do it around coach. They won't do it around the program. They're not. They're going to wait till they get home to do all that nonsense. But if you know what you're getting into, day one, day two, then obviously you're going to fall in line, or you're going to find some place else to be. And obviously, we don't want those uh, players as well um, with that program. But white players, um, white coaches who have all white teams really need to have that conversation and have it right away. Well, cause your team may be all white, but your campus isn't going to be all mm-hmm. white. I mean, you're going to have minorities on your campus, so you're going to interact with somebody at some point. And I think a good example is what's going on with Iowa football right now. I don't know if you followed them at all. And I worked there for nine years. There's, there's been some, some pains there and they've got to work through some things. So I'm, I'm intrigued to follow that situation because it's, it's thrown right out in front and things that you never heard of that guys are coming out and talking about right now. But care, you know, especially as a white person, like how, how can we get comfortable with confronting injustice? Like you're going to see it at some point. How, how can you get to that point where it's okay to speak out? Um, because Again, in our society, you may get pulled back. If you speak out and you get uncomfortable, 
somebody may come out, which is fine. Like, but how do we get to that point where it's okay, man? Like you got to say something and that's, that's with minorities. That's with females. You know, as coaches, you got to talk about your guys' relationships with females. Those are all things that you have to address with your team because if you don't, something's probably going to happen at some point because on college campuses, you're you're around so many different lifestyles and walks of life that if you don't address it, things are going to come up. So how do we get to that point where it's okay to get uncomfortable and, and speak out? So I, I think uh, for me, it would be one of those things. And again, I keep going back to how I was raised. If as a white coach, you're uncomfortable having a conversation to stand up for something injustice, then you might as well be on the other side of the people that are enacting the injustice. For sure. You don't believe in it that much, right? Or, or because you have experienced and been part of the ultimate white privilege that, oh, that doesn't affect me. That doesn't have anything to do with me. My grass is cut. My flower bed is I'm not worried about the neighbor's yard because my yard is taken care of, which is OK. Right. But the problem where that's not OK is that when you are a coach, when you are in that environment and you are responsible for conducting an environment that is going to send out quality young males, specifically male sports, to be productive members of society, then you have an obligation to be able to make sure that you're teaching them those things regardless of what it was that they were taught when they were, you know, the previous 18 years before they showed up on campus. I've always said, and I always, and I will believe it to my last day, we are in a people business that involves baseball. We're not in a baseball business that involves people. So that's football, that's basketball, that's whatever. We have to remember that we're in a people business. We have to remember that we are shaping what we want our country to be moving forward through these athletes that could go off and be professional athletes with a lot of uh, exposure and a great platform, or they could go be a CEO of a company, but still have that same amount of, um, of, of power and, and ability to, to make change. And so it's important that we put ourselves in a position um, that we're instructing them the right way. You know, one of the things I've told some guys um, when it comes to that is don't, make the statement that I don't allow that type of behavior in my locker room and believe that that then absolves you from being part of the problem, right? To, to come out and say, Hey, yeah, we, we don't approve of that. We don't, you know, I don't stand for any of that. We got black kids on our team. And so we don't fit into that category. Again, that's not admitting that you are potentially part of the problem. That's you saying, well, because I have black kids, because I don't allow that in my locker room, well, what do you mean you don't allow in your locker room? Like I said, if you have an all-white team, you're telling me that you stood up in front of your team and say that we don't, right? In some of those programs, the most, uh, the, the, the comment that may ring the most when it comes to addressing the issue of racism may be the pregame when the PA announcer gets on and says any racial or negative kind of will immediately be, that may be the extent of that program's comments on racial inequality or gender inequality or many of those types of things that's not doing enough right and and so i think the idea of being able to speak to those issues and again guys that are uncomfortable with it then now again admit that you're uncomfortable and that's where the education begins to allow black folks or even white folks that have an understanding to be able to say hey listen this is where this is this is how this is perceived 
um, and, and moving forward. And, and so for me, example, you look at what's taking place over this last two weeks, right? You, you have uh, Ahmed Aubrey who gets shot. You have George Floyd. But the one, and, and, and again, people losing their lives, I'm not saying it's more important. The one that was the most telling for me that really, really should have opened people's eyes because black folks getting killed by cops or whatever, that's not new. The fact that it was on video brought it to light. But the one that was more telling was the woman in the park. Yep. Like that should have been the one that for for everybody, specifically non-black folks, for white folks, that should have been like, oh, wow. Like it's on camera that she knows African-American male threatening my life, send the police, I'm afraid. That man was nowhere. He wasn't close to her. I mean, you're in an area where there's a sign right there that says, put your dog on a leash. That was the ultimate white privilege. And then for her to try and walk it back, nah, you can't. And that's probably the best thing about the phone right now. Everybody complains about the phone. That's probably the best thing about the phone right now is that you can bring stuff like this to light. Like you can't hide from it. You can say whatever you want, but you can't hide from the from the video. You can't. You know, on the teams that I coached, I didn't deal as much on the racism side because we did have minorities. So um, through the recruiting process and them being around the team, like they get to know each other. But I had to deal with it more on the female side. I would have to check guys' conversation how they were talking about females. And so, like, that's where, for me, I'd be like, hey, we don't talk, like, I, whatever you think, like, like that, we don't talk that way about females. Like, yeah. you know, I'm trying to help you go forward and be a decent person. So I didn't run into as much on the, on the racism side, uh, but it was way, way more on the female side. Um, you know, Juan and I talked, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. Juan and I talked earlier about maybe some of the examples on the baseball side you know, you're from the Midwest. I, I coached in the Midwest a long time with the, the White Sox program. How do we get more of that involved in some smaller areas? We talked about Greensboro. You know, we don't have a – we've got minor league teams here, but we don't have a, a major league team here. Um, you know, how, how can we branch that out into maybe some other areas that don't have it? Because I think the ACE program is a good example of what can happen if you invest resources into an area. They have more kids going to college now than they've ever had before. And, um, and having good college experiences and graduating from college of coach Blake Hickman and Devin Pickett at Iowa, who both came out of the ACE program that both are doing very well for themselves. Um, you know, how can we grow that in maybe some areas that don't have it? So I think uh, that's one of our challenges and and one of our big initiatives with the diversity committee um, that that we have under the ABCA is to to grow the game in um, black communities. Uh, And so uh, what we're doing is uh, starting to identify regional representation um, and and having that regional rep be that point person uh, in that region, um, looking to travel to to these regions, put on coaching clinics. Um, roll out a curriculum of uh, from 6U all the way up uh, to give them, hey, here are the fundamentals. Here's how you teach the fundamentals. Um, and so, again, through education, right, being able to go out, um, trying to create opportunities uh, for better coaches at the younger levels that will keep our kids interested in the game. So possibly using some of these minor leaguers, maybe imploring Major League Baseball to say, hey, you know what? Any of you guys that go back to a socioeconomic depressed area and spend time in your off season teaching, we're going to pay you for it. We're going to give you some money 
to, to for your time of going back and doing this because you're helping growing the game. Should the guys want to do it without pay? Of course they should. But the fact that minor leaguers don't get paid anything, you only have so much time um, when it comes to volunteering. So, hey, you know what? Let's put some of our money to use and we're going to pay you to go and do this. Have some coaching clinics, have some clinics with, with some of these kids because now the kids in those communities, they get to touch it and feel it. And somebody that came from their community, or if not, at least looks like them, comes back and spends that time to coach them and educate them in the game. I think that's how we'll be able to grow it. And then the other addition that we have is um, creating more professional opportunities for minority coaches, um, black or brown coaches. Uh, and so kind of the same deal. And that's at the professional college. Uh, I even want to extend that to the high school level to start to get some more minority coaches at the high school levels, because now you may have some of these um, bigger schools where um, they have a bunch of athletes in the in the school and they're all football players. But now all of a sudden there's a black coach over there. Let me go try this baseball thing out. And and again, you guys know, I'll never tell an athlete, a pure athlete that they can't do anything right. Like a, a pure athlete, you can teach them how to do things and they'll pick it up and they'll run with it. So the idea that we have to catch them all there, I don't think it's true. I think we just have to be able to provide the opportunity for them to have an understanding of the game and put quality coaching and instruction in front of them that will allow them to go out and be successful. You know, do you feel like coaching is the biggest hurdle with the younger groups or, you know, cost of playing baseball, lack of scholarship at the college level? Um, you know, do you, what do you feel like are the biggest hurdles? So I definitely think it's a, it's a chicken or the egg type deal, right? Um, can you say it's college scholarships and because there's not full, full rides in college that I don't know if parents conceptualize that at those younger ages, right? If anything, football and basketball is sexier right now. Uh, so that, that may, at the younger ages, that may be that. Um, when you talk about. And more minority coaches at the youth level too. Yes. There's going to be more minority coaches at the, at the lower levels with basketball and football. Yes. And not only are there more minority coaches, but there are more minority coaches that are more versed in basketball and football than there are baseball. So I do believe that if we put quality coaches at those levels, I think we will get more kids playing the game. Um, then once I think you get up into age, now it becomes a money issue. At those younger ages, I don't think it's a money issue because – everybody's got little league that you pay the $300 and you get your uniform and you know, those types of things. And then as you start to progress, well, then now we start traveling and doing some of those things. That's where it begins to get a little bit pricey, but AAU basketball is not cheap. And the majority of kids that are playing AAU basketball are black kids that aren't paying anything to play AAU basketball. So there's ways that it can be funded and, and we give our kids opportunities uh, to be able to play and, as you have better kids, then those better kids will have more opportunities because they're good. Um, you look at some of the kids that are on some of the top travel teams now, some of these kids, I know they don't have the money to pay for it, but because they're good, we got you. So now let's create that pool of better kids that then in turn gives them those opportunities to be able to go out and play it. But I definitely think coaching um, at the younger levels uh, has a, a lot to do with it. And that's not a minority thing. I, I played multiple sports growing up, and I kept playing because I liked the coaches that, you know, whether it was soccer, football, baseball, tennis even. Like, I liked the coaches, so I wanted to play again next year. So that's that's a that's an all-people thing. That's a human nature thing. That's not, that's not a minority mm -hmm. issue. That's all kids at that age. If they have good coaches, they're going to want to keep playing. 
Hey, this is from Rob Fletcher, who runs the ACE program. Um, he said, "How can African American base? How can the African American baseball community capitalize on the current current state of the U.S.?" So, you know, I, th- I think when you look at that, um, it, there's now going to be this rush to justify the wrongs, right? Like, how can we get this right? What can we do to to you know these things have happened, all this injustice? How can we do that? So I think when you look at that, I think that's where the, the opportunities um, may come uh, because people are going to be looking to say, how can we provide equality, right? Because it's one thing to talk about the racial aspect of it, but when you talk about systemic racism, then now that's more than just the color. Um, it, it does come down to a, an economic issue um, with education and access to to resources and proper health care and, and all those types of things. So I think when you look at that, and then I think that will also boil down into the athletic opportunities that we're creating for our kids uh, to provide them chances and not just again for college, but just, hey, giving them quality experiences in life through athletics, I think that's where there's going to be some benefit from that. What What things would you like to see go away with what's going on right now? What are the top three things you'd like to see go away that you feel like are going to make things better? Uh, Again, I I think, I think that probably the biggest is the divisiveness. um, Right. Um, But, but I think unfortunately, because there's so many things that are ingrained in people um, that they never knew that were really, really there. um, Their mind is, it's already in that one track. So, but, but I think being able to get rid of that, um, would help without getting rid of that. I think we're gonna we're going to continue to have problems. Juan and I talked about that off air. It's got to come from the younger generation. Steve Kerr talked about that. I, you know, that's where we've got to continue to get it with the younger kids. You know, your kids, my kids, where hopefully we can eventually buffer it out by teaching the younger generation the difference between right or wrong. I'm the way I am as a 45 year old because of my parents because of, of how they treated me and how they treated other people and the examples that they gave me on how to treat people and that it didn't matter who they were as long as they were a good person. That's my worldview is because of them, but not everybody comes from that place. So hopefully it's from an education part at the lower ages where we can get it shifted out because the 80-year-old the person out there, the 70-year-old person out there, yeah. I, they've got a lot ingrained at that point. I'm not making excuses. It's just, that's human nature. If you've lived a certain way your entire life, it's going to be hard for you to make changes late. And and it's trickled down. I mean, the 80 year old person has a 50 year old person underneath them. The 50 year old person has a 14 year old person underneath them. So it's, it's being able to, to, to open people's minds, like I said, um, and, and get them to understand that there is a conversation that needs to be had. Um, Unfortunately, the, the those who are against and say, oh, it's not as bad, they will quickly go to crime rates and, and you know, those types of things. But then again, that's where we go back to the systemic aspect of it. Well, if you live in impoverished communities, then with lack of education and proper education, well, then you, you have no other option but to go the route of crime if you're not an athlete, singer, right? So... So it's this this cycle that will continue to perpetuate itself. Um, you know, one of the things I like about where we live, we live in Zachary, Louisiana, 
uh, and the school systems uh, up here. Uh, they've been the, I think the number one school district in the state of Louisiana for the last eight years. Um, and when we first moved here and we went and did a tour of the school, each, every two grades has its own building. So there's a preschool and kindergarten building. There's a first and second grade building. There's a third and fourth grade building, so on and so forth until you get up to the high school. And then the high school has a ninth grade building and then you transition into 10 through 12. <clears throat> so at first I was like, okay, that's different. But then when you think about it, because everybody in the city goes to the same school. So the person that lives in the $10 million house versus the person that lives in the $10,000 house, they're all going to the same place. We wear uniforms. So because we wear uniforms, now you're not worried about what your clothes have to look like it nope you're putting on the same khaki pants and blue or white shirt every day um so then in communities like this now that's where the opportunity comes to kind of equal things out and give kids the same access from an educational standpoint that somebody else may have had whereas where i grew up the schools were sectioned off by where you lived Right. And so if you were on one area, then you went to this school. And because that was a predominantly minority area, they may not have all the same resources because the tax, the taxes that come from that area may not be able to provide the same things. And so being able to look at models like that, that when you talk about education, just not the social education, but the actual fundamental education aspect of it is if we're able to turn out more educated kids, then we will have better things in society um, and we will have better processes and better mindsets and, you know, more equality because the education is going to be equal without equal education. We're, we're going to, we're going to be, we're going to be staying in the same spot. And my wife is a title one reading specialist. So she deals with kids that can't read uh, and like fifth, sixth graders that can't read. So, you know, she and I have talked and I've talked with, with former players, you know, starts even before they show up at school and i think dolly parton's a good example i know i'm getting off tangent here but she has a foundation any kid that's born i think in kentucky or tennessee they get a book a month sent to them until they start school because a lot of it what you see now is before they even show up on the education side that if we can if we can get it right out of the shoot um then hopefully it, it carries over into the the education side when they get there because it's an all-encompassing thing and um you know it, it's heartbreaking when kids are behind when they show even when when they show up they're behind well and, and the thing too that the when you when you look at that because i was an early childhood special education minor right so in those environments you take you take a young a, a, a kindergartner who goes to kindergarten who comes from a single parent family who um, lives in uh, a socioeconomic depressed area and you send him to school and, and out of the five days a week that he goes to school, three of those days, he doesn't have breakfast. Exactly. He doesn't have air conditioning, so maybe he doesn't sleep well. So he gets to school and the teacher's in there with 17 kindergartners and this little boy, Bobby, can't pay attention. So we're going to take Bobby and we're going to say, hey, Bobby, I'm going to put you back here and I'm going to give you something else to do so I can keep you focused so I can focus on the rest of these kids. So then we go through the kindergarten year and then there's other opportunities. Bobby acts out. Bobby, I'm going to send you to the principal's office because you can't do this. Now we get to the end of the kindergarten year. I don't want Bobby back. Bobby, you're going to first grade. Exactly. 
Bobby never learned what he needed to learn in kindergarten. So now we get to first grade. The teacher is asking him to do certain things. His still his circumstances are still the same at home. Yep. The home life still isn't good. And now we've added on top of that, that now you're asking him to do things from an academic standpoint that he never learned prior to. So then now another layer of frustration sets in. And then because there's another layer of frustration, then we're going to act out, right? And then because we act out, I'm going to put you in this corner. I'm going to send you to the principal's office. You're going to be in detention. You're going to be in school suspension, so on and so forth. Into this first year grade comes, teacher says, I don't want Bobby back. Bobby, you're going to second grade. Now Bobby gets to second grade. Now all of a sudden Bobby has a learning disability. Bobby had a behavioral issue exactly. that was never addressed in kindergarten because we didn't take the time to understand where it was that he was coming from, why he was acting out, and spend that time with him individually. We just pass it along. He's he's not a good kid. Black kids always act this way. Da, 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 da. We don't look deeper into it. And then now because he's in second grade and now we're going to say it's a learning disability, well, now we're going to put these resources into him to try and catch him up. And then now he's being told you have a learning disability. Well, if at eight years old, you're turned, you have, you told you're having a learning disability, what are you going to believe? You have a learning disability. So then now as you continue to move through school and life, well, I have a problem with learning. I didn't, no, you never learned the ABCs the way you're supposed to. You never learned phonics the way you, you didn't learn those things the way you were supposed to learn them at that developmental phase. And that, that early childhood through second grade, you can pour so much into those kids' minds and they just continue to take it and want more and want more and want more. And if we do that and take those time with, with the kids to do those types of things, then again, we'll also eliminate some of these problems that now you're getting kids that are getting uh, high school and they're, they never learned what they were supposed to learn back in kindergarten. So they're three or four years behind and we got all these individual um, IEPs and all this other stuff. And now kids aren't passing the test scores and they're not going to college and now they don't, they can't go to college. So then, so then again, you have this cycle that just continues to run and don't let Bobby be an athlete. Cause he's really going to get pushed through. And then somebody's always going to be making a pass for him. And then he will have gone through his entire life with somebody always making a pass for him because he could throw a baseball, run the football, shoot a basketball. And then again, now, again, you perpetuate that cycle. Now you put some money in Bobby's hands. Well, he didn't have an education, learn how money works. So what is he going to do? We'll go blow it up. So again, it, it's easy for people to look and say, oh, see, you know, you give this guy something and he does this and look what black folks do with their money and da, 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 da. But we never get to the root cause of the problem and address it the way that we're supposed to address it. So we are in turn creating the issues that we have. Kirk, do you know of any organizations out there that are helping with the early childhood development stuff in, in inner cities, impoverished areas? Because, uh, you know, once... If your basic needs aren't met, if you're not sleeping right, if you're not eating right, this is for anybody. If you're not getting enough water, proper nutrition, you're going to be, that's anybody. That's a human, that's a human issue. Like you're going to be behind the eight ball if you don't get your, your needs met. Are there any organizations out there that are trying to help with that? Um, you know, I think that you have some, you know, you, you had, um, uh, not, I'm trying to think of what it, Head Start uh, yep. was one of those. And I don't know if Head Start still exists. Um, now or not. But what, what I will say to that, though, is um, because it's a socioeconomic issue, at that point, poor black folks and poor white folks are on the same 
explain. Like if you're a poor white person, you're looked at as being trash, whatever it may be, white trash, all these terms that can come up. And it's only because they can't call you something that refers to your skin color because otherwise they would. But at that point, when it's a socioeconomic issue, they're on the same and level playing field at that time. It's just not as many uh, white folks fall into those categories because they have other means. So, but I do think like Head Start, I know is out there and, and I think there's some other things, uh, programs, there's some things here in Baton Rouge that um, where our guys go out and volunteer and do some reading and, and we do some some uh, community service type projects to, to help out with some of those things. Um, How often are you guys doing that with going out to read in the schools? That, that's a, we do that every year. And I loved it. I love doing that too. I loved it. Yeah service for me is huge um and for more than for no other reason yes you want to give back to your community but i want our guys to stop being so self-centered i want them to understand listen it's not about you there's out there's people out here that you know when we go to the 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 kitchen here and, and we serve food to these people that are coming in and they're everything they own is in the two bags that they have on their sides and our guys are looking and i was like and you're complaining to me because your phone isn't working this, this person doesn't have a place to sleep and they're coming to get a meal and you're worried because Twitter's not reloading fast enough. Like, like put it in perspective. What about some things that, that we need to, to keep? You know, we talked about get rid of some things. What are some things that we need to keep? Um, I, I do believe that, um, you know, kind of like Juan was talking about, I think with social media, as much as it can be used to tamp some things down, I also believe that it can be used to push some things out and, and get out some positive messages and um, because everybody's locked into it, right? And so I, I do believe there's a lot of things that, that can come from that. Um, I, I honestly believe that this whole COVID period, <clears throat> time period has provided an opportunity for people to reconnect um, and understand that sense of family sitting down and eating dinner together. Um, you know, I've seen more people go take walks in our neighborhood than, you know, I've seen in the whole time we've been here in this last, you know, couple of months. Um, so I, I do believe that idea of, of that connection and family um, is key. Um, I also believe that this, the whole thing with COVID, again, now what it's showing you is COVID and yes, we were talking about it, that you have more black, black folks that are dying. But again, that's because of the situation. That's that a socioeconomic they're... issue. Yes, exactly. But because this thing has attacked everybody, right, and nobody is, quote unquote, immune from it, so to speak, regardless of what kind of money you make, I also think that may have kind of brought things down a little bit. Um, you know, again, my grandfather was a minister and I'm a firm believer. God, don't make no mistakes. Um, and so I think this is this is one of those things where it's like, hey, let me remind you all of what's really, really important. Right. And then the fact that all this stuff is happening and COVID is taking place. Um, so you can argue that, man, this is a, a really bad situation and, and we're seeing the worst. But is it an opportunity for growth and development because we're at the bottom? C can it go lower than this? It can. But, man, this is. When you talk about the stock market, when you talk about- I hope not, man. I hope we don't go lower than where we're at now. But, but this is it. So now you, you're at, when you're at the bottom looking up, now you have a different perspective. So I think hopefully this gives people that perspective and understands with all these things that are taking place, 
okay, as we start to come back together, as we start to build, then now let's open up some of these conversations. Let's ha start having some of these, these talks. Let's look at our education system. Let's look at how we're treating uh, people of color in our country, how we're dealing with minorities. Let's look at the police force and, and making sure that they are being educated properly and, and we're doing the right things. And there's checks and balances with that, right? Not, not just, hey, we're gonna put you through this training. We got you this sensitivity training send you out. No, where are the checks and balances? Well, money talks. Obama talked about that last week. Like they, they put a task force in place. They have those nine things for, for brute force put in place, but then money talks. So you know what? Your police chief, police chief of police, if he's doing it right, he gets a race. If he's yeah. not, then he gets fired. And that, you know, money's the only thing that people will listen to especially on that side the political side of things money's the only thing that people are going to listen to so Juan, if, if, i think if everybody ahead. was held in society if everybody was held as accountable as coaches are for winning and losing you see a difference <laughs> <laughs> for sure because that's not going away like that for you guys like it's it, it it's there 24 hours a day like it, it's what drive whether you want it or not. Like that's what drives you. That's what's going to get you out of bed in the mornings. Like that's that's just part of the deal. Whether it's recruiting, all the stuff that you do, it's driven by wins and losses. And yes, you want to develop your guys, but at the end of the day, you get a paycheck because of of being successful. Juan, what are some final thoughts for you? And then we'll let Carrick finish up. I think Carrick is absolutely right. You know. Um with the coronavirus, you know, kind of slowing our lives down to a bit of a crawl. And so we all have this watchful eye and then everything unfolded right in front of us and we're able to see it. I just would just encourage everyone to just keep their foot on the gas, keep the conversation going, keep, you know, try to find solutions, keep things um, in the right perspective, you know, um, run hard after um, justice and don't stand for injustice, number one. But uh, he's absolutely right. Just got to keep it going. Just this lines of communication and as a coach and um, as a father, as a, as a parent, as a brother, you know, as a player as well. So um, I think it's, you know, well said. Carrick, what about you? Final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I just, again, kind of echo what, what Juan just said. The same deal It's just continue to educate, um, you know, people c continue to communicate. Um, and then, again, understand humbling yourself to know, uh, to be able to come out and say, hey, you know what? I may be part of the problem. And, and I think admitting that you're part of the problem doesn't mean that you're, you know, a card-carrying member of the KKK. It's admitting that, hey, you know what? I've never thought about it in depth before. We always go back to the, well, I got black friends and my best, my son's best friend is a black kid and my daughter's Blake. Like that's all good, but that doesn't necessarily mean again, there's a difference between tolerance. Yeah. That's tolerance, not acceptance. So, so understanding that yes, the, some of these behaviors I tolerate, but does that mean that I'm putting myself in a position to make sure that, I'm creating an environment of acceptance. And, and the same thing with coaches. It's you have four or five black kids on your team. You have two or three black kids on your team for you to stand up and say, we won't allow that is one thing, but that doesn't mean that you're creating an environment that is welcoming and accepting to the players of your program that are coming in of color. Um, and so if, if you're not doing that, 
then that's those are the things that needs to happen is you need to make sure that you're creating an environment. You need to have conversations with your with your minority players, your black players on your team and telling them, hold me accountable. Let me know what's going on if something happens in the clubhouse, because, again, Juan's probably been in the same situation that I've been in. Like you're, you're in that situation and something as similar as, you know, we all make the joke about how well endowed black guys are. Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like you, you laugh that off and you, you accept that, but then that just leads to something else that leads to something else that leads. To, so it's the acceptance of those types of things is okay. Yeah. Keep coming. Take it a little bit further, take it a little bit further. Um, and, and one of the things I tell people to do is as an exercise is have people close their eyes and tell them to describe to you their definition or their image of the all American boy. It's going to be blonde haired, blue eyed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But again, when you flip that, right, the irony of that is have a woman describe to you white, black, and different, have a woman describe to you what her ideal man is. If she could pick her man, what's she going to say? Tall, dark, and handsome. So on one side, we're denying the idea of what that all-American boy could be. But then on the other side, we're idolizing that of the black male and saying, this is what that looks like. But again, I'm putting you in this position of... I don't know, for lack of a better way of saying it, of, of, of being an idol and, and fitting these things. And so, again, those are the types of things that we deal with that I, I don't think people realize that when we say those things or, or have those thoughts, that those things are also perpetuating the problems that we have today on a, on a subconscious level. Yeah, because you may say things and you don't recognize it. And until you become aware of, of what you're actually saying, it's hard to make any sort of changes. And that's part of being a human being and evolving. It's not just race related. It's everything. If you're trying to be a better person, as you get older there, you're going to have to make some changes. And what you thought your worldview was at 16 definitely shouldn't be what your worldview is at 45 or 40 or 35. Hopefully you're getting better as you go and not set in your ways on what you thought was a good thing when you were younger. Hopefully you've made some changes up to that point, but it's not an easy thing to make changes, but that's all. Hopefully we're all striving to do that. Yep. Agreed. Well, thank you, sir. It's uh, great seeing you. Um, go back. I think scouting is, that's when, when I first got to, to know you was the scouting side of it. And then you and I are Falmouth coaching alums with, with Jeff Trundy. So I talked to Jeff the other day, so he's doing well. Good, good. good. I appreciate you having me on. This is a tough topic to cover. Um, I hope that our dialogue helps uh, anybody that listened in. And uh, these are hard conversations that we need to have uh, if we want to move forward as a country. Uh, this is a time to learn from the past and focus on solutions for the future. I uh, hope we can get past tolerance and move into acceptance. I loved uh, when Coach Jackson talked about that. I uh, really took that to heart and, and felt like it's a, a great point uh, for anybody listening in that we do need to get past tolerance and move into acceptance. Uh, this is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the ABCA. Thanks and leave it better for those behind you.